Well, we've been learning a lot as a church concerning the gospel and the heart of God for for the lost, particularly the orphans, widows, those who are poor, those who are suffering, those who are in need. Um, God has been teaching us a lot in our study in Matthew 9, 35 to 38, a few weeks ago, what we've experienced at India and what we hope to experience with Hands of Work in Africa uh, next year. And there are many books, resources that are out there to help us understand this, this whole new horizon that God has, God has exposed to us. And I sent that email out to you with Tim Keller's message, and that was so powerful such an encouragement to me and my wife. We, I heard it, and then I heard it again. My wife heard it. We spent several hours talking about it. So I commend that to you. Devote 32 minutes of your time this week to listen to that message you haven't already. I would also recommend his book. It just came out a few months ago, Hot Off the Presses, A Generous Justice. And I appreciate this book so much. I've read it twice already. And I gave a copy of this to Marcus Denny and a copy of this to Peter Malcar. And uh, Tim Keller planted his church in the late 80s, and he didn't write a single book. He had written a book based upon his dissertation, Mercy Ministries, years ago. But growing church, thriving ministry. New York is a place where Christians go to die and where church plants die. And yet he was able, by the grace of God, to plant this vibrant church that is like winning the lost to Christ. And for all these years, he didn't write a single book because he wanted to make sure that the gospel that he believes in, the gospel that he is preaching, bears fruit first in his own life, and in his family, and in his own church. So after almost 15 years of ministry, he began publishing his material that has been such a great resource for me and for our, for our leaders and for our church. And I commend this book to you. And you, it's, it's different from other books there. You will find that this book is biblical and there is um, very little power play in this book. And almost none at all where, where the book is, I did this, I lived this life for Christ. What are you doing? You should do it too. Or this is what our church is doing or what our church has done. What are you doing for Christ? You will read this book and you'll find your heart not filled with guilt or, or some kind of worldly sorrow, but your heart really just seeing God's heart for the lost and really convicted and inspired by the gospel to see God's will for you and how God might use you for the needy people that are around you. So today we're going to continue our study in this theme of God's heart for those who are in need in this world. Um, and so the sermon that uh, is near bulletin, I'm going gonna, gonna to change that. It's not from Matthew 5:16. Uh, our studies is going to be based on Matthew 25:31 through 46, and the sermon title will be very simply the, she- the sheep and the goats, right? The sheep and the goats. And I think the AC is on, Han. If you can get the heater on instead of the AC, they got the summer and winter mixed up here um, in the school. Um, what we, are, what we are learning as a church, what the elders and pastors are learning as a church, is that the purpose of the gospel is indeed holiness. That God's will for us, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, is our sanctification. That God desires us to be holy positionally and practically. There might be some confusion there might be some misunderstanding, 
definitely I might be misconveying something, but it could very well be, you know, there is some, I'm mudding up the waters and it's being misheard. But God's heart is for our holiness. But what we're learning is that the holiness is a means to another end. The holiness is not the ultimate end for the Christian life. God desires us to be holy, pure, and consecrated, set apart for the purpose of good works, for the purpose of good deeds, the purpose of loving the world and serving one another. If we see holiness as just as an end of itself, what will happen is we become fixated on our own Christian lives, on how we're doing as Christians. And we become insular and self-centered and self-focused. And all we care about is our word life, our prayer life, our theology, our doctrine, our walk. And in that way, we become hypercritical towards others. And over time, we despair of ourselves because we fall short of the standard of holiness. There needs to be an outlet. There is a biblical outlet prescribed to us in the scriptures. And what is that outlet? Is that God makes us holy instruments to be used for good works in this world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is God's gift to us. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest anyone should boast. And then verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works. That's the intended end of our salvation and our sanctification. God created us. God saved us. God is sanctifying us. Why? For good works, which God and the sovereignty prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Paul says there, grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness to renounce worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God is concerned with our holiness. God is concerned that we live pure lives. Why? Verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He did all of this. Why? Why did he leave us here on the earth? So that we might be zealous for good deeds. Titus 3, the next, very next chapter, 3 through 7. We, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's who we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to, to good works. Paul says, insist on these things, Titus, to your church at Crete. 
insist on this, that God saved them so that they might be careful to devote themselves to good works. So Jesus saved us. He's sanctifying us that we might be a people set apart for good works, that we might be a salt and light in this world, that we might display God's glory, display the glory of his holiness and love, the glory of his truth and grace, Holy, display his justice and mercy. But the sad reality is that for me and for our church, we are not balanced we are much better, and we're not that good in holiness either, but compared with the two, we're much better at holiness than love. We're much better at knowledge than mercy. I am much better about truth and theology and doctrine than about grace. We are discovering that God's heart is both, and he calls us to do both, to be both, and to do both. We are discovering that love, mercy, and grace to one another, to the poor, orphans, widows, the hungry, naked, those who are in prison, having a heart of compassion and mercy is not an optional thing for a Christian. It's not extra credit for a believer. It is essential. It is a vital element of our faith. And if this is lacking in your life, if, if, you're, if you're lacking mercy in your heart, Right? Compassion in your bowels for those who are suffering. If you're lacking these things, what is needed for you, what is necessary, is not just heart surgery. It is more because your heart can't be repaired. It's irreparable. What is required is open heart, heart transplant surgery. You have a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. God must do a spiritual work where you are born again, where God gives to you a new heart, a heart that understands the grace, love, and mercy that you have received from Christ, therefore, that is in you by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how radical, how intense, how important this issue of compassion for the poor is for our faith, for your life, and even your destiny is at stake. Your destiny is hanging the balance on this issue. And you might be saying, oh, James, like, you know, that's, that seems a little bit too much. Are you exaggerating here? Is this true? Are you speaking in just lofty, hyperbolic terms just to get attention? No, we find this out based upon our passage. This is the last teaching of Christ to his apostles in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the last teaching he gives to his people. We are at, on the last part of our Lord's Olivet Discourse. And he says, this is vital for a Christian. He, he knows this is, this is within 48 hours that he'll be in Gethsemane, uh, sweating drops of blood. He knows within 48 hours, he'll be denied three times by Peter. He knows that within 48 hours, he'll be brutalized, beaten up, spat at, scoffed and punched and slapped, crown of thorns and a purple robe. He knows that within 48 hours, he'll be hanging on a tree, cursed by God, experiencing hell, forsaken by God, where he is utterly alone, experiencing the wrath of God alone. 
And so he, with that cross in view, he teaches his disciples for the very last time. And so this teaching, this Olivet Discourse is filled with instruction. He, he told them of this great Herod's temple and how it would be destroyed. That a single stone would be left on top of itself. He gives them the signs of the end times. He tells them of the parable of the two servants, the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the bridesmaids, the ten bridesmaids, and the parable of the talents. And then he gives them this last instruction. And in verses 31 through 46 of Matthew 25, it is not a parable. It is not a story. It's not an illustration. It's prophecy. It's prophetic. This will exact literally happen. He's describing what's going to happen one day. Just like Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, have we not performed miracles, cast out demons, did all these wonderful things for you? And Jesus will say to these people, Never have I known you. Away from me, workers of iniquity. That's a prophetic statement that will happen when we will be there to see it. Likewise in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, this divine separation, this this judgment that Jesus Christ will execute upon all people of the world will will happen and everyone here will see it with our own eyes. This is his last teaching emphasizing its importance. It is here that the Lord determines who will and will not enter his kingdom. It is the most severe and sobering warning of judgment in all of the Bible. You go to verse 31 and we find the glory of his second coming. The power, majesty, the grandeur with which he will come in his second coming. This is where the Jews are confused. They read the Old Testament prophets. They expected their Messiah to come in power and glory and might and confront the evil rulers, particularly the the government of Rome, and squash them with his mighty hand and usher in the kingdom of God, bringing eternal peace to the nation of Israel. They expected this mighty warrior, warrior king to come to rescue them. But Jesus came, humble and meek. He came as a baby. He came poor. He was was born in a manger, right? He was born in the city of Bethlehem, a two-bit city in the middle of nowhere. Right? He was a carpenter laboring, a blue-collar worker laboring with his hands. He had no, 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 nothing to esteem him. No education, no power, no lineage. And then he suffered and he died on the cross. That's why Jews said he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah that the Bible promises is this powerful warrior king. But Jesus is saying, no, you're confused. That there are two comings of Jesus the Messiah. The first is to, as a suffering servant humble and meek, where he will ride a donkey into the city of David to lay his life down for the people of Israel for their sins. But the second coming, he is not coming on a donkey. He is not coming as a servant. He is not coming humble and meek. He is coming with glory, authority, majesty, power, and might. And he is coming to judge. Judge all mankind. This authority was given to him by the Father. This coming of the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God. 
He approached God and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is how Christ will come. And verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people. Right? Sheep and goats. He will come to judge all nations. Jude 1, 14 through 15, the Lord is coming with thousands upon his thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of the, uh, all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoke against him. That he will separate all mankind and he will do what shepherds in, in Israel do to this day. During the day, sheep and goats graze together. Sheep are docile, gentle animals. Goats are unruly, easily provoked. So at night, they separate them. At night, they separate sheep and the goats. So Jesus will one day separate all people, just like a shepherd would do for his animals. He will separate them to his left and to his right. The sheep on his right the goats on his left. And this way he will judge the nations. The Lord is slow in coming, but we should not understand slow as God's weakness. He's being patient with the world. It's an extension, it's a manifestation of his loving kindness that he has not judged us already, that he has not returned. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. He turns, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You are the ones who are blessed. You are the ones who have true faith. You are the ones who are saved by God. How does he know this? Verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Six categories of deeds that these people did, but we want to make sure that there is no misunderstanding here. This is not salvation by works. These are not how they were made righteous, how they were saved by God. These are the fruit of their salvation. These works are a manifestation of His redemption. Come, you are blessed. You inherit your kingdom. Why? Because these were bountiful in your lives. You were involved in this work. You had a heart of mercy and compassion and you did these things while you were on the earth. These good works are the measurable product, result, evidence of their genuine salvation and not the basis of their salvation. I mean, there's that whole uh, dynamic between faith and good works, right? faith and good deeds. And the book of James 2 talks about that, right? 
uh, how, what good is it, my brothers? If a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds. And then James illustrates what he's talking about, what good deed he's talking about. The very next verse, verse is, suppose a man comes into your meeting, to, a, to your church, and brother or sister, and is poorly clothed and is lacking in daily food. And one of you says to him, them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needy, needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if you come upon someone who is hungry, who is, who is lacking clothing, and all you do is minister to them spiritually, I wish you well. You know, I'm going to pray for you this week. Let me share a Bible verse with, with you. If that's all you do, that is a faith that even demons have, James 2.19, very next passage, and they even shake. It is not genuine faith. 1 John 3, 16, 17, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. John is saying, God's love does not abide in him. Right? If a man is, has world's possessions, has the ability, and sees someone in need, and yet his heart is closed towards that brother, surely God's love does not abide in him. Next chapter, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, hates means has no concern. His heart, her heart is unmoved by their circumstances, situation, their, 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 their pain, their need. He is a liar who does not love his brother whom he has, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We find not only in Matthew 25, but really in the, all of the New Testament, really in all of the Bible, that mercy is a quality that exists in every Christian. A heart of compassion and mercy is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. The truest evidence that a person has been touched by mercy is that he is merciful. Clearest evidence. We would go to uh, Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. He owed $10 billion to a king, and he is unable to pay. The king forgives him of that $10 billion debt. He goes away. He knows about this. He goes away happy and finds a guy who owes him $5, and he is angry. He is filled with anger and rage against this guy for not paying him back takes him to the authorities and has, has him jailed. The king hears about this and so angry. How could, you not, how could you not have mercy upon 
This person owed you $5 when I forgave you of $10 billion. What is going on here? Right. For him, you know, he received mercy. He was forgiven of $10 billion debt. But for him, it was just a legal transaction. For him, it was like he won the lottery. For him, like he was able to convince the king somehow. He was able to articulate his need. He did something to earn it somehow. It was a legal transaction and my debt is paid. But for him, he didn't understand why the king did this. Right? The heart behind the forgiveness of his debt. That is why it didn't break through his heart. And so when he met someone who won him $5, he had no mercy for this guy. For many of us, the gospel is just facts. Gospel is just the four spiritual laws. Gospel is just truths or ideas or teaching, instruction. So we have a legal mindset. This is what God did. This is what I have to believe. Therefore, I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. And we're fixated on that and we have no conception of why. Why would God do this? Why did God do this? Why did God? Wow, you were a sinner. Why? You did nothing but curse God to his face. Why would God send his only son to go down the cross for your sins so that you might be righteous in his sight? Why? And the Bible tells us it's because of his heart of love for us. Because God is a God is a God of infinite mercy steadfast love, unending compassion. That is the reason why. And that is what shakes our hearts. That is what we are to know about the gospel. There are two Greek words for knowledge. In the uh, knowledge, It's gnosko and oida. Oida is just conceptual knowledge, intellectual knowledge, information. The word gnosko is intimate knowledge, personal, relational, experiential knowledge. For many of us, just like this man, we have a legal understanding of the gospel, but we don't have an experiential understanding of the why behind the gospel. Therefore, we go around, and what is missing is mercy. What is missing is compassion, grace, and love towards others. We, uh, this is compounded by our sense of our own righteousness. You, you go to Matthew 18, verse 26. The, 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 the man's response to the king, he says, I owe $10, million, $10 billion. His response is, have patience with me. I will repay you. That's the heart of, uh, of religion. I just need more time. You just need to give me more time. I have the ability to make myself righteous to justify myself, save myself. I can do it. I, I, I'm going to resort to myself. I believe in myself. And with that mindset, there is no mercy towards others. Right. You look at other people and say, hey, I was going to pay myself back. I know I sinned, but I was getting my act together. Why can't you get your act together? Right. Why can't you be moral and just and righteous? And because of that, legalism, Lack of mercy and compassion towards others. Jesus said to these people, there was evidence, clear evidence of mercy and compassion in your life. Therefore, 
Your faith is genuine. Come into my kingdom. And then verse 37, their response is amazing. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? I mean, if I give food to Jesus, I'll remember this. I wouldn't forget that. When were you thirsty and I gave you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and walking you into our house? Or when when were you naked and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison to visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. There is this uh, unbreakable union, inseparable union between Christians and Christ. Ephesians 5, 29, 30, we are the members of his body. Romans 6, we've been baptized into him. Galatians 2, 20, we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Saul was told, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? There is this union between believers and Christ. And Jesus was saying, when you fed that hungry person, you fed me. When you gave water to that thirsty person, that was me. When you clothed that person that was cold, that was me. It was me who you were ministering to. And they were completely unaware. For them, they were so grounded in, in what Jesus had done for them. It was just part of their life. Good works. They're abounding in good works. They, they almost were not cognizant that they were doing good works because they were so abounding in this beautiful work. Um, you know, I was, I'm told that one of the most beautiful places in the world is the island of Maui. And you go there, you see the ocean, the, the sea, the, 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 the clouds, the skies, the beauty of that island, and you would agree. But they would also tell you, if you stay longer than two months, you become oblivious to that island. You forget that you're living in paradise. That people that are natives of that island, they don't even notice sunrises and sunsets anymore because it is just a part of their life existence. Likewise for these believers. They were abounding in beautiful work. And yet, because it was so natural to them, they were completely unaware of it. They were just believing the gospel and living out the gospel, and they were doing it for Jesus. That's not what uh, legalists do, pragmatists do, religious. They always have an angle. They do something and they got to call attention to it because their agenda is self-promotion. They got to get something out of it. Uh, You know, Philip Morris, the tobacco company years ago, had this worldwide campaign to stop underage smoking. They spent $100 million to stop people under 18 from smoking their products. At the same time, they spent a hundred more million dollars to advertise this campaign, to let everybody know that Philip Morris is doing all of this work, spending a hundred million dollars to prohibit underage smoking. They spent a hundred million dollars. Somebody asked one of the executives, why don't you just spend 200 million dollars to this campaign and not spend any money on the marketing? Of course, there's no answer, right? But the answer is, why would we do this if nobody knows about it, right? We are doing this good work to promote our company so that we will look good in the, in the marketplace. That's the legalist heart. 
That's the Pharisaic heart. That's our default state of our hearts. That's why the gospel is supernatural. It's wholly foreign to us. It is what we cannot do. God does in us and through us. Jesus commends them. Jesus welcomes them into their kingdom because nothing evidences conversion more than compassionate love towards others. As he praises the sheep on his right, he turned to his left, he will turn to his left, and he will say, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. A lack of compassion and care for the poor, orphans and widows and those who are suffering is a clearest sign that the worshippers' hearts are not right with God at all. That their prayers and all their religious observances are just acts of pride and acts of selfishness. Tim Keller uh, tells a story in his book and in the sermon that I emailed to you, a true story. There was an elderly woman who was single, was widowed, was a widow, and she had no children, no heirs. She had no family, no relatives to give her inheritance except one nephew, one young man. Whenever he came over, he was just so nice. He was so gracious and kind and, and just warm and just serving her. But she wondered, what is he really like? What's really in his heart? True story. One day, she dressed herself as a homeless lady and went and sat in her uh, the steps out of his townhouse. That morning, the young man came out and he kicked her. He yelled at her, screamed at her to get out of her, his, his, his neighborhood. He's going to call the cops. At that moment, she knew what her, what her nephew was really like. And this is what these people in Matthew 25 discovered. That who they truly are is not what they were in church, but how they treated people were the outcasts of society. Isaiah chapter 1, God said, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of your burnt offerings, the fat of your well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more rain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are filled with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58, 6-7 says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Jesus taught that a lack of concern for the poor is not a minor issue. But reveals something is serious wrong, seriously wrong with one's heart. He prescribes the Pharisees in Luke 11:41 a startling remedy. You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed. Give what is inside to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. And then verse 46 of Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, a few final thoughts here. Now, this is not in the text, but I got to think that as these people were being led to eternal punishment, they had some objections. They had a rebuttal. They did not want to go down fighting. They had some arguments to God. And I, 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 I would think one of their arguments were, but we did feed the hungry. Right? One Thanksgiving, four years ago, we fed the hungry, right? You know, I did give water to that person that came by our house. You know, I gave clothes to Goodwill Salvation Army. I have proof. I have the receipt right here, right? My tax return that I gave clothes to those who were, who were, who were needing clothes. Well, our Lord's response is 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3. If I speak of tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I am not motivated by love, I gain nothing. God will say, now, you did those things, but you did it for yourself. Right, you're, you're, you did it for yourself. Right, you're just a Philip Morris company, but on a smaller scale. Right, you did it, it wasn't motivated by, 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 by me and what I have done for you. It was done because of the cross. Right, 1 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. That is true. But that's the only kind of giver God wants. Right, he wants the only kind of Giving, he wants this cheerful giving. If you give out of, out of begrudgingly, if you give out of duty, out of, out of anger or pain or guilt, that is not giving that honors the Lord. He rejects that kind of giving. It is no gift at all. Other objections might be, and I'm borrowing here from 
Jonathan Edwards' sermon in 1733, The Duty of Charity to the Poor. He would go and preach this sermon on Christians' responsibility to the poor, and he would hear all these objections. So he he rebutted these objections. I'm just going to paraphrase them for our time. Another objection is, these people, they were not destitute. Right? They weren't that poor. They weren't to their last dime. They, had, they, were, they weren't really poor at all. I remember seeing John Stossel's report in 2020 many years ago. He found homeless people who were eating at a soup kitchen. He went to their apartment and saw how they lived, and they had cable TV. All right? They had big screen TV. They had, they had VCRs and DVD players. And said, look, oh, they're not really poor. And that's the objection. Yeah, we didn't, they weren't really that poor. They were able to survive. Jesus will respond according to Edwards. What well, the Old Testament commands, to love others as you love yourself. Is that how you treat yourself? Right? Do you, do you only buy a new piece of clothing when you have nothing else to wear? Right? Do you think about your finances when you have sold everything, you've liquidated everything to eat? That's when you ask for help? Is that how you treat yourself? Or at every inkling of discomfort, are you, do you rush to care for yourself? Well, the Bible says, love others as you, as, as you love yourself. Well, the new commandment is, goes further. Love others as I have loved you, John 13, 34. Is this how Jesus loved you? Right? He left you to yourself to the final end where your sin has totally dominated you and ruined your life and then he saved you? Or did he lavish upon you? before the full consequences of your sin bore itself out in your life. How did God love you? Another objection is, oh, we don't have anything to spare, right? We don't have anything that we can give without burdening ourselves. Well, Edwards argues that's exactly what biblical love requires. It is, love means to sacrifice. Love means to suffer. Love means it costs. Bearing someone's burdens means we have to carry a part of their burdens and make our lives more difficult. If we give just out of what is left over, that is not Christian love. Is that how God loved us? Is that how Jesus loved us? Where he just blessed us at no cost to himself? Or how did Jesus love us? Was he just inconvenienced to love us? No. He gave his whole life. He was separated from the Father. He experienced the wrath of God to save us. And that is how we are to love the world. The final objection is, uh, they're undeserving. These poor, they're so sinful. They're so selfish, prideful. They deserve to be poor. I want to help those poor people who are kind-hearted, good-natured, who be grateful. Those are, and I couldn't find any of them. Well, yeah, the reason you can't find any of them because no one like that exists, rich or poor. Right? We're all sinners. You will never find anyone deserving of compassion, love, and mercy. That inherent meaning is they don't deserve it. They're unworthy. And you're compassionate. You're merciful. You're gracious to them. And how did God love us? Did He love us because we deserved it? Were we good-hearted? Were we loving? Were we selfless? No, He loved us in spite of ourselves. And that is how we are to love others. All these objections fail to convince and they are sent to eternal punishment. You know, I never understood James 2.13 until recently when we studied this, studied this topic. 
where in that passage of good works and a brother comes or a sister comes hungry and lacking clothing and you have, your heart is, has no compassion. And it says in verse 213, judgment without mercy will be shown to those who have shown no mercy. So if you have not been merciful, God will show you judgment without mercy. Why? Because it shows that you're not a Christian. You don't understand grace. You don't understand God's love. To those who have not been merciful, there is judgment shown to you without any mercy whatsoever. Close with uh, Pastor Robert Murray McShane, his sermon to his congregation concerning this. He said, I am concerned for the poor, but I am more concerned for you. I know not what Christ will say to you on that great day. I fear there are many hearing me today who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars for eternity. What is the way out? Jesus is the way out. Jesus is the way out. The cross is the way out. Not just looking at what happened. Not just looking at, oh, $10 billion debt was forgiven. Now I'm debt free. No, we got to look at the heart behind the cross. Why did God? Remember two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus. At any moment on the cross, he could have said, you're not worth it. James, you're not worth it. You're so selfish. You're so self-righteous. You're so full of yourself. Why bother? And he could have left the cross and left me in my sins. What kept Jesus on the cross for me and for you? It was love that kept him there. What, What sent Jesus to the cross? It was Father's love for you. His compassion, His grace, His mercy that sent His only Son to the cross on our behalf. That truth is what breaks through and gives us an inkling into the power of the gospel so that we might have new hearts to love God and to love others. The legal understanding is sufficient for holiness, for morality, to be good, upstanding citizens and Christians. To have this heart broken and transformed to love people, truly love them, requires understanding the heart behind the gospel. May that grace break through. May that break through in our lives all to His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for 
the grace you have shown us this morning, the grace where we heard of your love for us through your Son. That is a, a mercy and grace that we do not deserve. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us and showing us what is in your heart. And it is that heart that caused you to send your son to die for us. And it's that heart that kept Jesus on the cross. We pray that through the Spirit that it would break our hearts this day. And through the Spirit, uh, transform our hearts. You give a new, us new hearts. And that every day that this renouncing, this repentance will not be just a one-time event today, but every day we'll renounce and repent of our pride and our sinfulness and, and run to you and cling to the cross alone for our, 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 our standing before you. And in that way, Lord, you would bear the fruit of <coughs> love for the world, love for the lost, love for the poor, where uh, it would be your work and not ours, that all glory would go to you untouched. In Jesus' name we pray.